0: Well, the kids are in the service today, so maybe I'll start out with a question for the kids. How many of you kids have ever been on a uh, playground or something and you're going to do something and and one of the other kids is like fighting to get in front of are like, me first! Has that ever happened before? Ever had that? Have you ever been that kid? You know, and I would love to stand here and tell you, don't worry, you'll grow out of it. But, you know, the crazy thing about me first is it's not something that we totally grow out of. Some of us grow out of it, perhaps more than others. But I'd love to tell you that the kid that's on the playground butting in front of you to get on the slide saying, me first, might grow up to be the adult on the freeway who, when you are trying to merge uh, onto the 401, goes, me first, and speeds up when they see your blinker on because in their mind... That three seconds of their life is more valuable than the lives of you and your children. I'm sorry that I must cause the deaths of countless others. But I don't know how else to say this, but I'm more important than all of the rest of you. I mean, it just some of us don't grow out of it. It's amazing. You've all been on the highway and you're thinking you're going to cause death and havoc. Just let us in. Let us live. Um, Me first is the train wreck, uh, it's the kiss of death to relationships, me first. If we go into marriage, me first, it's game over before it begins. If we head into friendships with me first, those friendships are going to be strained. If you start a business and you're, and you're, and underneath it all, your vision statement and mission statement and, and your org structure and your business plan, if underneath it all is me first, it's, It's not going to go well. Right now, we've got the North American Free Trade Agreement, you know, discussions that are happening, and there's one of the gentlemen's of the three uh, countries that are represented at the table there has developed the Me First philosophy into national strategy. So those talks aren't going well because Me First is very, uh, it's counterintuitive um, to collaboration. It's counterintuitive, really, to, to love. And so our text this morning is from the end of Colossians 3, and into Colossians four, but I'm actually going to be bumping around uh, through through the chapter to give context because we're showing up at the tail end of Paul's letter. Uh, really, we're going to read from Colossians three eighteen all the way th- through to four to six. But I'm going to start earlier than that because we're coming in right at the end of his conversation, and uh, it's a, it's a laundry list. It, on the first glance, it seems like a laundry list of instructions. And if I just go to the text and read the instructions and tell you how to walk out the instructions and go home, uh, that's, that would be good and helpful and appropriate in the sense that you would have heard the Christian ethic. But you wouldn't have been very encouraged, and you most certainly wouldn't have got Paul's context for why he's telling the church to do these things. So I'm going to read that in a second, but I'm going to give you some context. So he leaves the church with these words of instruction, and they come in the form of, and you're going to see it when I read them, They come in the form of a series of one-liners. These small one-liners with really big implications. And so he's he's essentially closing out this letter to the Colossians by saying, those who are saved by the grace of Christ will have their way of relating reshaped by the grace of Christ. And so I'm going to read uh, this text this morning, starting in Colossians 3. I'm going to read uh, verses 3 and 4, and then I'm going to move to 12 to 15. And then I'm going to read from 18 uh, through into chapter 4. If then you've been raised by Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience bearing with one another and if anyone has a complaint against another forgiving each other just as the lord has forgiven you so also you must forgive and above all these things put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. If not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity and heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men." Knowing that whatever it is uh, that you do, and my apologies where I'm here. Uh, uh, knowing uh, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. This is God's word. Now... That ending of the letter sounds a lot like when you're leaving the house and you're giving last-minute instructions to your children. That's kind of the tone. You're walking out the door and you turn around and you say, there's food in the fridge. Don't forget to shut the lights off. Be nice to your brother. Make sure, remember, bedtime is 9.30. And one other thing, and oh yeah, and that is another thing. And please do not forget this. It's very important. Love you, bye. Boom. That's how the end of Colossians sounds. It sounds like that. This long list of of christian ethics that he gives to the church what's what's informing all of this here it has that kind of a feel well if the letter started here then it would be reasonable to assume that the christian life is all about doing but the letter doesn't start here the letter actually ends here which we misunderstand that the christian life is all about what we are becoming and so uh kids i'm using the word you know thesis and ethics and 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 i put in your notes there what what that means when, when somebody makes a thesis, when you, students are in, when you kids get a little older in school, you're going to have to write a, uh, an essay, and they have this thing called a thesis, which means, this is my argument, this is the point I'm trying to make here. And so Paul's point, his thesis in this letter, is not, hey guys, um, you need to behave in a way that saves you. The whole reason he wrote this letter was he was saying, hey guys, there is a savior who fulfills you. So all of these ethics, all of these instructions, everything that we're actually supposed to walk out and do... Is flowing from his thesis, which is Christ not only fulfills you as the savior or sorry, forgives you as the savior of your souls, but he fulfills you as the architect of your soul. And so if he is the great architect who rose from the grave, then these are the ethics that we walk out because in them is actually the wisdom that brings true fulfillment into our lives. And kids, if you look down at your notes, you're gonna see that I I I wrote a phrase there which says, If Christ did not rise from the grave, then these ethics are nothing more than one way of looking at things. But if Christ did rise from the grave, then the ethics that were given in Scripture are God's way of looking at things. And so if Jesus rose, if he was who he said he was, which was Paul's whole kind of argument at the beginning of of the letter, uh, then he's both Savior and Lord. And so when you zoom out from this passage and look at the whole letter, uh, we zoom out and we see, oh yeah, he, he has forgiven me, he is the one who fulfills me. He is the architect of my soul. He's the one who is holding the universe together with the word of his power. And now he's, he's, he's drawn me into his family and he saved me. And now he's saying, live this way in order that you would enjoy your freedom, and enjoy uh, this uh, liberation. In other words, those of us who have received the grace of Christ are being reformed by uh, that, that precise same grace. And so all of the relationships here You've got husbands and wives, you've got parents and children, you've got employers and employees. All relationships of life are now being reshaped by the gospel. And that's what Paul's showing at the end. The whole way of relating is being reshaped by the gospel. We're being instructed to turn from self-centeredness and recalibrate into others-centeredness. right? And uh, because that's how, uh, we lead loving lives. have you kids, remember, on the playground, the kid who's going, me first, me first, me first. It's difficult to make friends, and it's difficult to be loving, when really the subtext in your mind is, me first, me first, me first, right? So the, this end of Colossians is Paul saying, it's not actually you first. And actually, that's not going to lead you to a life of great liberation. The grace of Christ is re-entering your heart from a posture of being inward and curving us outward and upward. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. By grace, we are forgiven and united to Christ. By grace, our way of relating is being reshaped by the Spirit of Christ. And by grace, we are empowered to share the hope we have in Christ, which is how he ends the letter. He ends it with an instruction to share the gospel. But again, he's not just being heavy-handed. Okay, church, I hope you've enjoyed the grace, and I'm going to give you this big burden. It's flowing from something, so we want to explore this and look at it this morning. So first, in verses 18 and 19, you've got the husbands and the wives being instructed to leave the me-first disposition of their hearts so that they can prefer each other in two different ways. So Paul instructs husbands and wives to prefer each other uh, like this, and they both find their example in Jesus, how Jesus loved. Husbands are called to love and prefer their wives through an attitude and a lifestyle of you-first sacrifice. And wives are called to love and prefer their husbands through an attitude and a sacrifice of you-first submission. And both the sacrifice and the submission we find in Jesus, we find Jesus walking these things out, he sacrificed his life, he gave his life and he submitted to God the Father while he was being equal with God the Father. And so Paul's basis for calling husbands and wives to relate in this way is because it's gospel-shaped. Marriage is supposed to be gospel-shaped. Now, the word submit in today's culture brings up massive red flags. So I want to take a minute and unpack this before we move on because some of you are hijacked you've just read that passage. You heard wives submit to husbands and now you're stuck. So I, I want us to understand um, why, why God has not made an error in his word by giving this to us. Now, we are surrounded in a culture of oppression to women, degrading women, abuse to women, in the culture and in the church. Sinful hearts have looked at this text and applied it poorly, wrongly, oppressively. And so uh, we, when we look at that, for a lot of people, um, the pitfalls of chauvinism, the pitfalls of oppression, have become the lens for reading this text, which is wrong. Because when we see uh, this instruction from God's Word, which says wives submit to husbands, we don't look at a sinful man who's a chauvinist and oppressive and say, well, submission can't be good. We don't, he's not the example. He's not the picture. We don't look to sinful men. We look to a sinless Savior. So the Bible is not calling to oppress women here. It's not calling to oppress husbands by saying sacrifice and die. I mean, it's 2017, so I have to take extra time in the sermon to talk about uh, this because w- women have been uh, degraded for generations. The day that Paul penned in the first century, read it, the husbands are actually being called to do something that's nothing like the culture either. So Paul's not looking at the culture in Coloss and saying, husbands, you should sacrifice kind of how I see it going on out here because it wasn't happening out there. It was horrifying. Women were like property and being radically abused. So when Paul says, lay down your life and die, husbands, we're supposed to love our wives and prefer our wives and lay down and die, that was nowhere in the culture. And the submission in the culture was nothing like what Paul's describing here either. So I'm going to go to the Greek for a minute, not because Greek is super interesting to you, but because there's certain words in English that just become like trigger words for us. So if I go to the Greek and I expound it, I'm going to translate it faithfully because language isn't one-to-one, okay? language isn't like this word means that word there's a range of meaning you could use a number of words to convey the same thing so i'm going to go to the greek for a quick sec just to flesh this out to show us that what god is actually after is a beautiful thing in the marriage and for those of you who are single or for those of you who have no desire to be married and you're saying you're quite happy being single those of you that are divorced i'm going to get to how this i'm going to get to how this relates uh, to you in a moment so uh the husbands are instructed uh love, which is in, in this, uh, in the Greek is agapete. That's how it is written here. It could also be translated, Husbands, take pleasure in, long for, and prefer your wife over yourself. That's appropriate. Any Greek teacher who, I'm a novice, so I'm not trying to be a professional, I'm not trying to be something I'm not this morning, but any Greek uh, teacher would tell you it could be appropriately translated that way. Husbands, long for, and prefer your wives over yourselves. Who in the ancient world was doing that? Zero. Nobody. So Paul is not looking to the culture and saying, oh, let's reframe this like the culture. He's saying, you got to uh, prefer your wife. Why? Because Christ is the picture of that, right? And then when he when he turns to... Uh, he also says to the husbands, don't be harsh with them. And we, when we read harsh, we just think it means, you know, harsh. It can mean that, but it's even broader. It's from this uh, Greek word, say, which means... Husbands, it could also say this, husbands, do not exasperate your wives and poison them with your bitterness. So you see what Paul is calling the husbands to is die on the basis of what? Christ's great grace. How many of us husbands are doing it? How many of us husbands, as I'm saying this, are feeling the crushing, <laughs> the crushing burden of the perfection of God's law? Like, I limped into the pulpit this morning. It took me forever to write this sermon. It took me, me like, 10 minutes to write the rest of the sermon and 12 hours to write this part of the sermon because I don't feel qualified to preach this part of the sermon. So all of us as husbands fall on God's grace because we recognize that Christ laid his life down for us, and that's the shape of love. For those of you who are single guys and you're like, hey, I'd like to get married one day, You're you're really, what you're saying is like, gosh, I'm really looking forward to dying for the rest of my life. I just want to constantly die. It's constant death. Now, I'm going to say the other thing. Marriage is beautiful and wonderful and rich and glorious. And there's nothing like having somebody love you who knows the worst parts about you and still loves you. You know, that Susan's married to me. It's kind of like up there with parting of the Red Sea, as far as miracles go. Because when someone like, really gets your gross sin, and then they're like, I'm still committed to you, like that's what's up here. And so with the wives, this word submit, which makes all of us say, nope, that can't be wrong, we're not going to do that. It's this Greek word, which is hypoteseste, which could also be translated, wives, relate as one who is under the care and authority of your husband, and this is the, this is the clincher, in an appropriate An acceptable way according to the pattern of the Lord. This text doesn't say women submit to men. It does not say that. And when it talks about how the wife submits to the husband, it's in an appropriate and acceptable way. If Jesus submitted to God the Father, God the Son submits to God the Father, but he was equal to God the Father. So if Jesus submitted to God the Father in a way where he was now subordinate and no longer equal and no longer had equal dignity, that would not be appropriate. You have a massive trinitarian problem if you think that the Fa- that Christ is subordinate to the Father in terms of his dignity and his equality. And his a- I mean, there were councils throughout all of church history who were like, "Look, we got to get this right." They were equal. They had distinct. They they walked out that equality in distinct roles. And those things looked different, but there was a total equality there. And that's what's going on here. So, it, I took some extra time to unpack that because. God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sin and free us from sin and free us from destructive behavior. So it doesn't stand to reason that God would, in his word, call us to something that was destructive. God's word is never oppressive. It is never burdensome. It is never wrong. But sinful hearts in the church have applied texts like this in a way that is oppressive and is burdensome and is wrong. 1 Timothy 1.8 says the law of God is good if one applies it lawfully. And so for those of us who are husbands and wives here, this calls us to a love that's shaped like the gospel. And of course, we have to cling to grace because none of us are, none of us are doing that. None of, us are husbands, none of us husbands in here are laying down and dying every day. And none of us wives are, according to the scriptures, preferring our husbands in the way that the scriptures uh, uh, speak to the wives to do that. None of us are, are doing that. All of us can reorient ourselves to say, no, there's a you-first disposition that the gospel is calling me to. And so we need God's grace for that. It's because it's cross-shaped. You know, the cross is the promise of future love. When you go to weddings, people always look at each other's eyes and they're like, Oh, I love you so much. I love you so much. You do, like right now. You know, like in this moment, man. Like, wow, it's, the love is strong. But marriage is a commitment to future love. Marriage is a commitment to future uh, forgiveness and giving that's what it is so for those of you who are single say i'd like to get married one day you're not looking for someone to complete you i mean i know there's no way around emotionally looking for someone to complete you but i just need you to know that at the core of your marriage it's not like i need you to complete me it's i i'm actually committing to you in the future the future you the future you that lets me down the future you that fails that's the commitment. And all of us who are married, we recalibrate. We say, oh God, would you, by your grace, do a work in my heart um, so that I can love my spouse in that way. Marriage is a, a picture of this future forgiveness. Why? Because the cross is a picture of future forgiveness. That's what Paul's doing. Paul's not looking to the culture and saying, how do I, how do I you know, get some good ethics in this Christian program? He's looking at the cross and saying, our love should be shaped like that. Because that's the love that scandalously saved us and forgave all our sin. And so there's no conditionality on this. Our salvation isn't hinging on our ability to walk this out. But this is the pathway to freedom according to the gospel. As it relates to how we uh, walk in marriage with one another. Love, as the scriptures describe it, desires permanence. So marriage is shaped like a love that desires permanence. The cross, for us, we look at it, and it's a love that is shaped like permanence. When you think about the cross for you, when you fail... You come in here and you know by the grace of Christ you are forgiven, you are free. Week in and week out, I tell you, in Jesus Christ, your sin is forgiven. Past, present, future, done, not reversible. Not on the basis of your work, not on the basis of your faithfulness, but on the basis of Christ's faithfulness. And so Paul takes that and he says, husbands and wives, this is what we're being called into. To just a constant commitment to forgive, a constant commitment to love. This has got to, be the, this has got to undergird our marriage. And so, th- th- so this, this text humbles us. Now, for those of you who are, who are single, um, but you have no desire for marriage. You know, that's a noble thing. There's nothing wrong with you. We're not going to start a prayer chain. Okay, let's put so-and-so on the prayer list. They don't want to get married. Hey, if you want to remain single, that's a noble and wonderful thing. Jesus was single. The guy who wrote this letter to the Colossians was single. So, being single is a beautiful, noble thing. And, that's not a free path to the me first life. So it's not like, ooh, I dodged a bullet there because I don't want to be married. So everything Paul just said for the last 10 minutes, oh my goodness, do I really want to spend the rest of my life like sacrificing and giving and living for somebody else? Single life forever. Hey, enjoy your single life. That's a very noble way to live. But but that does not give you a, a green card into me first living. The gospel still calls you to be reshaped and recalibrated into a, a you first and others and outward uh, face life, which gets into... Uh, The later thing, when it gets into vocation, how do you relate to work? How do you relate to your employer? If you're the boss, how do you relate to your employees? If you're single, it's still outward facing. So that's important for those of you to understand, and it's important for those of us here who are married to not relate to the single people in the church like they have some sort of a sickness that needs to be cured. Uh, Oh, you're single? Oh my. Well, we'll pray for you tonight. Leave them alone. They're fine. They enjoy their single life. They don't want to get, you know, if they don't want to get married, they don't want to get married. And they now, for those of you who are single... You, you've got the, the Apostle Paul opportunity, which is, hey, I can go here, I can go there, right? I don't have kids to get home to. Somebody's going through something, I can have a coffee with them. I can meet you here, there. I can just get up and go and move. I can be missional in the city. I don't have to go home. and I can, You can just leave your house. You know, it, the interesting thing about marriage is the moment you get married, you can't just leave your house. Without just without telling people where you are, that's, you're a grown adult. But if I want to go buy some, if I got to go buy some bread or something, I can't just leave. I'm like, hey Susan, I'm going to run out and fill up the car with gas, or I'm going to go wash the car. Okay, cool, see ya. Like, that's the other-centered life of marriage. And so the single people go, whoo, dodged a bullet there. But no, now you're free for gospel ministry, right? You're free to li- gloriously care for others. It's amazing opportunity. It's beautiful. And for those of you who are divorced, who are listening to all this, I want you to hear this very clearly. God's grace has covered the brokenness of that sin. God's grace covers you, is renewing you, and is restoring you, restoring your heart. For those of you that have gone through uh, a divorce or are going through divorce, that God's grace is ever towards you. And uh, the fact that uh, the marriage for for a litany of reasons has broken down and came to the place of divorce, God's grace is there to cover, cover you in that and be there for you in the days ahead and minister to you deeply and profoundly. And so we're going to move on. And you kids are like, what about us? Man, you've been talking about marriage for a long time. Well, I hope you're listening because some of you kids want to get married, right? No. I just saw a little guy look at me like, Whoa! <laughs> no, I don't. Okay, well, let's get to the kids and the parents part. In verses 21, 20 and 21, um, he says, you know, children obey your parents in, in, in everything. And you kids are wondering, hey, maybe you could bust out some Greek. Maybe everything doesn't mean everything. No, it does. I checked. <laughs> the word everything in Greek is panta, if you're interested, and it means everything. So why, why would God's word, why would, he, why would he call you to do that, kids? Why would he say that? And notice Paul says, children obey your parents. It's like he's talking to you in this letter. Notice that Paul doesn't go, and parents, tell your kids... Notice he did that? He's talking to you. Why would he do that? Because he's expecting the kids to be there. He's expecting the kids to hear God's word. And he's expecting you kids, um, those of you guys that love Jesus and have been rescued by the grace of Jesus, to grow into kids that are like, yeah, you know what? I want to um, resemble the gracious Jesus who saved me. That's why Paul says that. And the other reason he said it is because we talked about it before. If you're disobedient to your parents, if you're living a me first life, then you're setting a pattern... That's going to be very unloving. If you're a kid or you're a teenager and, uh, or, you know, say, well, what constitutes a child? And then that's a big, huge discussion. It's very, it's not that complicated. When Paul wrote this, children were everybody who lived in the house. Right? So for us, if you're 18, you're obviously, you're not a child. You're a grown adult. If you're 16, you know, by our uh, culture standards, you'd say, well, 16, you're an adult. But if you're living, if you're living under the roof, um, then there's a, there's a call to obey appropriately, Right? respect and honor your parents appropriately because you're living there. Otherwise, what's the alternative? The alternative is no. Um, I'm going to live the me-first life. See, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick and choose, you know, what my parents are up to, what I kind of choose to obey and not, and I'm just going to live me-first. I mean, I'm going to eat all their food and they're going to do my groceries and, and my laundry. That, that's a given. They're going to do that. But... I'm going to basically pick and choose and live a me first life, and then I'm going to get married. But then when I get married, I'm going to live this glorious, you know, have this glorious you first romance. No, you're not. You're developing a pattern that's going to show up all kinds of places. And so the Apostle Paul calls, this, calls the children of this ethic. Why? Because the church is to, as those who are resting in the grace of Christ, be a blessing to one another and to the city. And so he starts right down with the kids. He says, hey. But then he flips it and he says, parents, he says, fathers, which is, again, important. why would he say fathers? Because it wasn't like in the ancient world, you know, and even up to the Industrial Revolution, it wasn't like men were like picking up the briefcase and, buy honey, going to work, and the wives were at home watching the children. They, they parented together and they worked together. I mean, everybody did that. They, they, they ran the businesses together, they made money together, they had careers together, and they parented the children together. They did it all together until the Industrial Revolution, and that's when it really changed things, and men went in factories and things changed. So when Paul says fathers... There's a partnership here with the parenting. He says, don't provoke. Don't discourage your children. So for us as parents, there's this call to not discourage, or in the Greek, it's to take the passion away, dispassion the children. How is it that we can do this? It's because when we uh, abandon the rest and the grace of Christ, bad parenting becomes very easy. And the reason bad parenting becomes easy, and I know because I've done it, is because we get tired and we get exasperated. And rather than caring about the the child's heart and putting the child's character front and center, we put our convenience front and center. That's why when you're in the mall, have you ever seen a child act out and you feel very sorry for the child because the parent's way of dealing with the child in public is very clearly about them. Have you noticed this? You ever seen that? It's like they're parenting the child very loudly and very publicly, but it really has very little or anything to do with the child, and it has everything to do with the statement that they're trying to make to everybody who might be seeing it It is about them. So Paul instructs us, hey, listen, if your heart is free in the gospel, if you're at rest in the gospel, then that's going to bring a liberation to, you know, the kids aren't going to be me first, and our way of parenting is not going to be me first. I'm just tired of dealing with you. You know, these are the rules, there's the fences, stay inside them, problem solved. No, it isn't. Right? I'm tired, I'm exhausted, do your thing, live your life, I'm just going to, Jesus, take the wheel, parenting. It's still about us, right? So the gospel calls us into this, it's not me first, it's, it's, it's you first, and it's care. And so he's got this long laundry list that, of course, he's calling them uh, into. And when you see the, uh, how this flows into the way the employers and the employees relate to each other, you notice that there's a dignity that's giving given to the employees that has nothing to do with their performance right there's a dignity that's given to them on the basis that their image their image bears it says you know masters you got to relate to them knowing that you have a master there's a dignity for everybody in the organization if you're a business owner the way that they're even the poor performers even the culture says you know you get to the end of the year you look at the financial statements the bottom 25 percent poor performers you just fire them that's how you grow business end of conversation that may be true you may even need to do that but the way in which you handle and deal with people is governed by this gospel, this freedom of, oh my goodness, if I've got one who, despite my ridiculously poor performance, is giving a radical grace and dignity to me, that then informs the way that I give grace and dignity and love to those who are working at my, in my company. And if you're the employee, which is most of us, then he reorients us to say, hey, it's like you're working for Jesus, essentially. Paul's like, well, you have to recalibrate how it is you, you think about it. Otherwise, you're going to go back into me first. You know, I've got so many stories about when I was a teenager working at Foodland, the Dude Land, because there was a subculture of you owe us. When I started working there, I made $4.15 an hour, which I know sounds like I'm, I'm 89 years old. I can't believe that, you know, $4.15 an hour, wow. But, anyways, I made that. And there was a subculture that we're like us and you, the management and the part-timers, and you owe us. So I got to tell you, there was a lot of chips that fell off the truck when I worked there. You know, there was a lot of McCain deep dish cakes that fell off the truck on their way into the freezer when I worked there. Because we had this whole me first thing going on, and we just felt like, you know... uh, you know, we did not look at it like, you know, hey, I'm just going to work diligently and I'm going to be a, a hard worker because God is, I'm God's child. I'm at rest in His grace. Yeah, you're paying me $4.15 an hour, but you know what? That's not a commentary on my identity. But the 16 year old Paul, I was like, that's a commentary on my identity. I'm not worth $4.15 an hour. Guess what? Some chips just fell off the truck. <laughs> because how do I garner my identity from this? Conglomerate, that is food land, that's oppressing the, oppressing me. And so Paul says, Listen, you've got to recalibrate how do you even think about all of this stuff. Curves us out, Why is he doing all this though? Why does he give them the laundry list as he walks out? He's because he says, Church, we have all been given the greatest thing. It's called grace. It's called eternal life. It's called the trajectory of where we're headed is bodies that don't break down, no sickness, no disease, every tear will be wiped from every eye, the restoration of all things. Everything that you have loved on this earth, that is good and from God, will be restored. Everything that is horrifying and tragic will be eradicated. If Christ rose from the grave, then that is true. Because that's what his bodily resurrection represents. And so Paul doesn't just go, let's give a lesson on ethics before I close the letter out. He's saying, if that happened and if that's true, and you and I are recipients of that great grace, then that's got to reshape everything else. And now we're free. And so he gives, uh, he, he gives him this picture. And so I close with this. He says, he says to the church, you've got to curve outward to how you love and care for each other. Husbands and wives... For each other lovingly. Children, obey fittingly. Parents, parent, you know, respectfully. Employers, lead your businesses, you know, justly. Is that a word? I'm with the Elise, so I just feel like I have to keep going with this. With justice. Employ- employees relate to where you're working. He gives this big ethic because he's about to do something else as the letter closes and he curves the church out to the city. He says... Walk in wisdom with those who are outside and have speech that is seasoned with it that is gracious and seasoned with salt. So he gives the church the ethic to say Learn how to love, learn how to curve one another. Now let's now let's KW Redeemer. Now we turn to the city. And we go out those doors on Monday and we go to work and we do our thing, you go to school, you go to hockey practice, you go to your music recitals, you go to whatever it is you're up to, and now our hearts are now turned to the city. That we can give Give a defense for this hope that we have, the rest that we have. So he turns them out. And he says, seasoned with salt, which he picked, which is, in, which is uh, the phrase in the Greek, it gives you the image of a chef taking his time, making something savory. When somebody comes to town and they say, oh man, you know, we're starving, you know, we've never been to your city before, where's a good place to eat? You get really excited about all the good places you've been to eat. Oh, and you start, t- you start selling that thing. Oh, man. And you, the way you're talking about it is seasoned with salt. Why? Because you've tasted it yourself. You've been there. You've experienced it. You're not like, well, I once read a Yelp review. Like, nobody does that. You're like, you've got to try this place. Because you've had it. You've tasted the grace. That's what Paul is saying. For those of us who've tasted the grace... Those of us who know that despite our failure, I gave you this long laundry list, we fail as husbands, we fail as wives, you kids have moments when you fail, parents you have moments when you fail, those of you who own businesses, you blow it with your staff, those of you who are employees, you blow it, things fall off the truck, stop it, right? The reason reason why Paul gives us that huge ethic is because he's saying, you've tasted the grace, you've tasted the goodness of Christ's forgiveness, you've got hope, and now we turn to the city and we share it, and we make it salty. Salty make it savory. Notice that he doesn't say, and when you, you know, be, walk with wisdom to those who are outside and make sure that your arguments are loaded with theological prowess and nuance. Make sure you are a biblical scholar so that you can articulate the historical defenses of the resurrection, right? He doesn't say that. I preach that way to you often because I want you over months and months for this stuff to get inside you so that you're like, no, I am, I'm, acquaint- I'm acquainted with why I believe what I believe. But Paul is specifically telling us, go and share what you have found personally to be very salty, to be very savory, to be very rich. And from that place of hope and that place of, of uh, liberation and experience, uh, share the goodness of the gospel. He's not just closing the letter by giving the church a massive, intimidating burden. This passage isn't charging the Colossians and us by extension with the daunting task of having to have all the life and death answers. This passage closes by calling us to speak with grace and conviction and clarity about Jesus and the reason we believe in Jesus, because he is the one who has all the answers. Let's pray.